So true story. I opened my Pinterest account yesterday, and in under two minutes, I saw posts for being a better parent, being more organized at home, how to avoid your teeth, how to be less anxious. And there was literally, my favorite, was a post that just said how to succeed. There's no doubt that we as people are wired to seek purpose and a better life. Something inside of us just longs for it. In today's teaching, Jesus explains where purpose and life are found and where our longings can be fulfilled. Today, we'll be studying John 15, where Jesus said, I am the true vine. But before we jump in, let's set up some background. Like last week's teaching, this one also happened in the upper room where Jesus was meeting with his disciples. The only disciple missing was Judas because he had already left to betray Jesus. The disciples were likely feeling kind of downhearted and confused because Jesus had just told them that he would be leaving, that his time on earth was coming to a close, and they were trying to make sense of that. With that, let's take a look at John 15, starting in verse 1, where Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. For this teaching, Jesus paints a word picture of a vineyard, and he says that he is the vine. But not just any vine, he says he's the true vine. Why add this extra word, true? Jesus made this distinction because in the scriptures, the nation of Israel had also been compared to the vine. But if we think back to our Old Testament history, we remember that the nation of Israel failed to grow well. They failed to remain faithful or fruitful. Israel was not a successful vine. Jesus teaches that he is the true vine, the fulfillment of Israel, and the only source of life. Jesus then brings God the Father into this scene, and he says that God is the vine dresser, the one in charge of the vineyard. This shows Jesus' submission and relationship to the Father, but it also gives us some imagery of God as the farmer or the caretaker. So I'm actually a terrible gardener. Uh, I think it's because you need to be so patient and attentive when you take care of plants. They seem very needy. But I so admire my friends who are successful gardeners. They seem to really enjoy, and I would even go so far to say they delight in the whole slow process of keeping a garden. And that's how I think of the father here, taking his time, carefully, lovingly tending each branch in his vineyard. Continuing with the word picture, verse 2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Jesus defined himself as the vine and the father as the vine dresser. And now he's introducing this concept of the branches. In verse 5, just a little bit later in this passage, he clearly states, I am the vine and you are the branches. But who is you that he's referring to here? I think the question that tends to come up is whether these branches are referring to believers or a mixed group of unbelievers and believers. And we have a couple of things that will help us to answer that. First, thinking back to the original setting of this conversation, we can just ask, who was Jesus speaking to there at that time? Literally, the only people in the room were his disciples believers in him. This alone is enough to safely say that Jesus is directing his message to those who already believe. But then we also have verse 3, which says, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. 
The disciples knew the religious laws of the day, and they understood what it would have meant to be considered clean, that it would have required their own effort, purification rituals, and even legal ceremonies. But here, Jesus says that they are clean, not because of what they've done or because of any of these ceremonies or rituals, but because of the word that Jesus has spoken, because of what Jesus has done. As we study the rest of this passage, it's very important that we keep this truth in mind. Jesus is speaking to believers, not about salvation, but about what comes after salvation, life in him. Jesus then gives us more information about the branches, and we learn that there are two types, branches that bear or produce fruit and branches that don't. Verse 2 says that if a branch doesn't bear fruit, the Father takes it away. Now, this phrase, takes away, comes from the Greek word iro and has two possible meanings. The first is that it means the branch is taken away, just like it's stated here in our text. I'm not going to go into detail about that right now, not because I'm trying to avoid a hard conversation, but because it's coming. We'll be covering that in verse 6. I do want to spend some time on the other possible meaning of this word aero, which is to lift up. So instead of every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, it could read, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. Vine dressers had a practice where they lifted up branches that were on the ground. They would place them up on a trellis or a pole to give them extra support and to give them a shot at growing and producing fruit. I'm drawn to this meaning when I think about the character of God. He is nurturing, long-suffering, the one who welcomes the prodigal son. I think this extra attention of God where he lifts up and gives support to some of the branches could make sense with what we know to be true about him. Verse 2 introduced the concept of the branches, but it also introduced this idea of fruit. I'd like to give you three things to think about when it comes to fruit. First, I want to point out that Jesus didn't compare himself to a green bean plant. I'm just saying. Fruit tends to be naturally appealing to most people. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. And when you are in a room with people who are characterized by these fruits, it's appealing. They are people you genuinely want to spend time with. Second, fruit is distinct, and it always points back to its source. We don't look at an apple in confusion trying to figure out what plant it comes from. We give credit to the apple tree for the fruit that's produced. The same is true for spiritual fruit. It points back to the source of life, to Jesus. Finally, fruit is visible and useful. We can see, experience, and enjoy it in others, and the fruit of our lives benefits all those around us. So we've already talked about the first type of branches that don't bear fruit, but what about the branches that do? Jesus says that these branches are pruned. So when the vine dresser would walk along the vine, he would inspect the branches and he would sometimes find moss growing on them or bugs and parasites kind of making a home in the leaves. So the vine dresser would prune these branches by cleaning them and would use a sharp knife to cut away the sections that weren't healthy anymore. Why would he do this? Well, very simply, it's because these bugs and the moss they're bad for the branch. This junk that builds up doesn't belong and it will hinder the branch and block some of the life that is coming from the vine. I think it's pretty easy to see parallels here for us. I know for me personally how quickly things like 
anger, selfishness, pride, and worry sneak in and they start to threaten my growth. Even though I'm connected to the vine, to Jesus himself, I'm still flawed and sinful. And I need God's patient attention to clean out the junk that is often hurting me and hurting the people around me. And what happens to a branch that doesn't get pruned? The moss, the bugs, the parasites, they get to keep up their work unchecked. And while the branch may not die right away, it will begin to limp along, living only part of the life it was designed to live. It will stop growing, stop producing fruit. And the same thing happens to us without pruning. Hopefully we can see how this process is God's loving attention on us. It's a mercy. But I want to be sure that I'm being real with you here and I'm not sugarcoating anything. Pruning can be very difficult and painful. The vine dresser uses a sharp knife to trim away the parts of the branch that aren't healthy and we will feel the cut of the knife. When I think about my best friends in life and what I value most about them, they're all super fun, which is a must for me but they're also honest and direct with me. They don't just tell me I'm awesome all the time. They give me encouragement, but they're not afraid to tell me like it is and say things like, Sarah, that's a lie you're believing, or I think you were wrong here and you need to apologize, or just stop being dumb. It's a cut. Sometimes their words are painful to hear, but I've learned that they see things clearly that I just don't see about myself. And I also trust them. I trust their motives are for my good, and because of it, I grow, and these relationships are strengthened. And when we're in this process of pruning, we need to remember who we're dealing with. It is our God who loves us, and we can trust Him and submit to this sanctifying work in our lives. Pruning is God's method to complete us and bring us into greater freedom and intimacy with Him. It's an invitation to more, more growth, more life, and as a result, more fruit. Next, in verses four and five, we're introduced to the key word of the whole passage, abide. This concept is so important, and this word is repeated 10 times in just these 11 verses and 33 times in the book of John as a whole. Abide means to remain, to stay, to dwell, or to persevere. Thinking back to the original text again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, the men he has quite literally been abiding with, They've experienced daily life together, persevered through difficulty together. And remember, not long before, they had learned that Jesus would be leaving them soon. So picking up in verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So I have to think that these words felt like an encouragement to the disciples, that the abiding with Jesus wouldn't end even when Jesus' time on earth did. Notice how Jesus didn't say, abide with me, like they had been doing all this time, but he said, abide in me. Jesus said he would abide in them, and as fellow believers, he will also abide in us. He promised before he left this earth that he would send a helper who would be even better, the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit doesn't just walk beside us, but he lives in us, remains, stays, and dwells. But while the Spirit is in us, the moment we believe, the word abide is an action word. It's a verb. And Jesus makes it clear that we can still choose to operate apart from him. 
I think intuitively we get this because we do it all the time, or I do anyway. There have been plenty of times in my life where I've wandered away from the truth or sometimes even stubbornly refused to listen to the Spirit's teaching in my life. D.A. Carson, a theologian and professor, said, People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. He goes on to describe what we do drift toward, things like compromise, disobedience, superstition, prayerlessness, and godlessness. I think Jesus commands us to abide, to remain, to persevere in him because he knows how tempted we are to drift, to slouch, to stop putting in the effort. And there is no effort on our part for salvation. That is all Jesus. But there is effort in every meaningful relationship in our lives. And our relationship with Jesus is the most meaningful one we have. When I think about my marriage and my relationship with my husband, Ryan, it's not all sunshine and ease. There's great joy, love, security, belonging in this relationship, but we have to put in the work of knowing each other, trusting each other, and growing together. What I can tell you for certain is that we don't just drift toward health and wholeness. Quite the opposite. If we stop putting in the work, we pretty quickly spiral to an unhealthy place. I think this is why Jesus is adamant about this whole abiding thing. He will remain faithful to us, but he wants us to choose to remain faithful to him, to understand it is not automatic. And when we do abide, when we stay connected to the vine, what happens? The verse reads that we will bear much fruit. Now, do the branches on the vine bear fruit because they're trying really hard or because they're extra special or talented? No. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. It doesn't matter how special or talented you are. Branches produce life. They produce fruit. Why? Because they're connected to life. They're connected to the vine. We work to keep our gaze on Jesus and abide in him. And fruit is the natural result of being connected to his life. And in contrast, Jesus goes on to explain what happens if we continually choose to live apart from him, from life in him, and we choose not to abide. Verse 6 says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So if you were to pull a branch off the vine, what happens to the branch? It would dry out, wither, and die, right? When we disconnect from Jesus, our source of life, we also experience death. Jesus is not speaking of hell and eternal death, but a death of fruitfulness. A branch apart from the vine quite literally dies and can't produce fruit, and that's what a branch is made for. And that's what we're made for too. We're made to live in the love and the security of Jesus, growing in relationship with him, and in so doing, producing fruit. We're created to engage in things that have meaning and value, but we can miss out on all of this. And when we do, we lose our usefulness. Like a dried out stick in the yard, it's no longer useful and it goes to the burn pile. And I know this whole concept of burning and fire feels concerning. Hell definitely comes to mind, but remember John 10, where Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So if it's not Hell, what is this fire and burning mentioned in verse 6? When fire is mentioned in scripture, it's an indication of judgment. So these branches are receiving judgment from the vine dresser. Again, this is not a heaven or hell judgment. 
but it's an evaluation of the believer's works. We're going to read a passage from chapter 3 of Corinthians that describes this judgment, where believers give an account to God for their lives, for what they've done with what they've been given. 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 11, says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, which means it will become apparent or visible. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Here, Jesus is described as the foundation of a building that we as believers get to build on. We can choose to remain connected and sourced in Jesus and build with things that endure, like gold, silver, and precious stones. Or we can go our own way. And we can build with things that only matter in the moment and won't last, like wood, hay, and straw. This is very similar to our metaphor of Jesus is the vine, where we get to participate in his life. We have the opportunity to build on what he has already provided and produced fruit. God longs for this, and we do too. But God will not force us to build well. This feels heavy, because honestly, it is. This is our greatest charge as believers, to keep our eyes trained on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And this is a worthy pursuit and the only one that feels right to our souls. In the final verses of this teaching, Jesus talks about the results and the beauty of abiding, of staying connected to him. In verses 7 and 8, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. At first glance, this seems pretty sweet. I mean, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I have my eye on a few things. But Jesus isn't saying here that he's our own personal genie or our wish granter. He's explaining a closeness with him where we know him and his words abide in us. He's describing a unity with him so much so that what we ask for already lines up with the will of the Father. Verse 8 goes on to say that we will bear much fruit, and we've already talked about that. Bearing fruit means we get to live in a way that we've been designed to live, with purpose, pursuing things that matter, where the fruit of our lives reveal the very characteristics of Jesus himself to others. Jesus then affirms his incredible love for them and for us in verse 9 and says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. I want to repeat that because I don't want any of us to miss this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. This is just incredible. Jesus is saying, do you understand how much I love you? I love you just like God the Father loves me. And this is what he's calling us to when he asks us to abide in his love. And then in verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. He explains that we're rooted in this great love of Jesus, so now we can walk in that love. We can keep the commands of Jesus and submit to him, just as Jesus lived in obedience to the Father. And finally, Jesus concludes with this. These things I have spoken to you, 
that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There have been some hard truths in this passage. Jesus does not promise that this life will be easy. He tells us we'll need to put forth effort to abide in him. He tells us we will experience pruning as God brings us into more life, better life, and growth. But he says there will be joy in this holy pursuit, and not just a little bit, but we will be filled to the brim with it. We are wired to look for life and meaning, and Jesus knew that and knew how tempting it would be to seek life in places that couldn't deliver. When we seek life outside of connection to the vine, Jesus tells us we will not find it, even with whiter teeth, a cleaner house, and the world's version of success. We'll only be left empty and disappointed. Only in abiding in the vine will we find fulfillment, joy, and life. So let's fight the good fight and encourage each other to do the same. Let's rest in the great love of Jesus, lean into the pruning process of the Father, and remain connected to our source of life, the true vine.